You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. This is Ed Harrison. I have the pleasure of talking to Carly Fiorina, uh, who is the head of Carly Fiorina Enterprises. Carly, welcome to Real Vision. Thank you so much, Ed, for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. We had this uh, uh, stock and ready to go before we had events here in the Washington, D.C. area where I am right now. I'm actually in Bethesda, Maryland, you know, blocks away from Washington, D.C. On the 6th, we had the storming of the Capitol, which is basically on everyone's mind. And, you know, when I was when I was looking at the uh, the Capitol and I was looking at the actors involved, I saw Ted Cruz and I, uh, you know, I looked him up on the Internet, uh, you know, seeing what was happening. And there he was talking about Donald Trump four years ago, I think it was, maybe it was five years ago now, in 2015, and saying relatively negative things about him. And right next to him uh, was you. You were standing right next to him, uh, listening to what he had to say. What, what are you thinking about what's going on in America right now? Well, first, I'm talking with you from Alexandria, Virginia, so very close to what uh, happened last week, which is on all of our minds. Uh, I supported Ted Cruz uh, in the early part of 2016 because I believed he was the only Republican who had a shot of beating Donald Trump. And I thought at the time that Donald Trump was corrosive, dangerous, lacked character, that he would be very bad for the Republican Party and very bad for the nation. Sadly, I turned out to be right about Trump. I turned out to be quite wrong about Ted Cruz. And I've been public in saying that I think Cruz, Hawley, uh, the others who have perpetuated this lie that the election was rigged and stolen have had their principles overcome by their political ambition. Uh, that's not the first time it's happened in this nation, but it is certainly a consequential and disappointing uh, occurrence. Um, Wednesday, I think we saw the consequence of a long pattern of behavior that has either been tolerated or not commented on. So last week before the storming of the Capitol, I posted on social media that, uh, you know, think back to Donald Trump tweeting, liberate Michigan. Think back to the pictures of uh, hooligans armed with loaded assault rifles mobbing the Michigan Capitol in Lansing, and Donald Trump and others basically excusing that behavior and saying these are patriots. It's a straight line from that kind of behavior about which there was too little comment, or worse, acceptance and condonement, all the way through six, eight, nine months of saying the election was rigged, to what happened last week. 
the good news, if there is any good news in this, is I think this was such a shock to the system, such a shock to Americans of all kinds and of both parties, that now you have people standing up finally and saying the obvious, which is that Donald Trump is corrosive and dangerous and lacks character, saying this is indefensible behavior and inexcusable behavior, calling for accountability, not just on Donald Trump's part, not just on these mobsters' parts, but on those who enabled him. And that is what is now required is accountability and clarity of purpose before we're going to get to rebuilding and unity. You know, uh, I, I hate to even ask the question, but I mean, when we talk about accountability, we're thinking about people who, after the storming happened, they went and they said, wait a minute, we're actually going to continue to contest this uh, this right. election. Should those people be expelled from Congress? I'm talking Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in particular. Yes. I mean, there were seven or eight senators who continued to push for this, uh, you know, examination of the ballots. There were 140 plus Congress people, including uh, their leader, Kevin McCarthy, who kept going forward. Uh, look, it could be censure, it could be expulsion, it could be companies cutting off PAC money from them, but there have to be consequences. There have to be consequences for each and every one of them, because otherwise, trust will never be rebuilt and we cannot come back to any semblance of unity unless people see accountability. Right. And, and you know, you and I, we're here in the Washington DC area, both uh, sequestered away uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, the, but, you know, we're in a place where these events occurred. I know people now who are in state capitals around the country. Uh, one, one of my colleagues is in Annapolis, and the word on the street is is, is that you know when you talk about uh, storming the Capitol in uh, Michigan, that on the 16th, 17th, and beyond, there there's the potential that perhaps they're going to do it again. Do you are you concerned that because we have not seen accountability thus far? Uh, you know, because there are actors on the public stage that are still contesting the election uh, at the highest levels of government, that we are going to see, uh, you know, violence in state capitals uh, this weekend. Well, Ed, I share your concern and I share your friend's current concern. Let, let us say first that those who commit acts of violence also are accountable. They're adults and they need to have uh, accountability and consequence as well. But let us also say, to your point, that you can begin to believe that the election was rigged and stolen from you when you have officials, the highest officials in the land, telling you that over and over again. And let us also acknowledge that this has been talked about on the internet for a very long time. And so it's not a surprise that people stormed the Capitol. It is a surprise that people were not prepared from a security aspect. And hopefully our security forces will have learned and be better prepared next time, both in our nation's capital as well as in capitals around the world, around the country. Because yes, indeed, uh, people are talking about this on the internet in the same 
spaces and places that they've been talking about this for the last year. And so let's take it seriously because they mean it seriously. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's almost a tragedy to have to begin our conversation about this. As I was telling you uh, before we started, I, I had wanted to talk to you as a historical figure uh, in the technology space. And then we we're going to talk more about that. I, I do want to talk about that now. However, I want to make the transition there with regard to how we're thinking about what's happening now, because before we can get into technology and economics and finance, which is what Real Vision is all about, which is what your careers have been about, we have to understand why what's happening is happening. Is there an economic component to what's happening? And to the degree that there is, uh, is there a solution that you can think of uh, as we move to the next administration? Well, the short answer, of course, to your question is yes. Look, one of the things that I believe leaders are accountable for is telling the truth. And in fact, for many, many decades, I have said that one of a leader's most important responsibilities is to have the courage to see the truth, to speak the truth, and to act on the truth. So what is the truth? The truth is that we have racial injustice in this country that has been allowed to fester for far too long. That racial inequity and injustice shows up in healthcare, in education, in economic opportunity, and in the justice system. Let us also speak the truth and say that particularly in the last decade, the rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, the middle class has become more squeezed. These are just facts. Unfortunately, the facts that I've just laid out about longstanding inequities in our society and in our economy, facts about how the wealthy have prospered and how the poor have suffered, those facts have become partisan. That's too bad because the data is very clear just as the data is very clear that we haven't made as much progress on diversity inclusion as one might expect or than as we need to. And so in dealing with those facts, I believe that addressing inequity in education is an economic issue. I believe that dealing with inequity in the judicial system is an economic issue. I believe that dealing with uh, a lack of opportunity and lack of living wages is an economic issue. Politically speaking, I may disagree with some others about how to get that done, but I think a first step, honestly, is for us to start agreeing on some basic goals. Do we agree that racial justice is important? Do we agree that equity and economic opportunity is important? Do we agree that equity and educational uh, systems is important. And I think honestly, that is what Biden is trying to do. There'll be lots of arguments about the policies that flow from that. But in my experience, the first step towards lasting change and change that is accepted and embraced is to start with what are the facts we can agree on? And therefore, what are the goals we can all embrace? And sadly, Politics has become, particularly under President Trump, but not solely, a game of division 
as opposed to trying to find real common ground around facts and goals. Yeah, and you know, I, I, it almost begs the question for me to start talking about social media. Uh, and uh, let's do that. I, I want to. Uh, I want to make a, a, a clean break, though, before we get uh, um, bogged down on the the politics of today. Because when you talk about um, you, th- this inequality that we're dealing with today, uh, and that it's been a long-standing problem, I think back to you as an individual. You have a storied career that goes back to 1980 as a trainee at AT and T you know, walk me through the world that existed then and what you were seeing then, uh, how, when you think about it today, how do you look back at at the time when you first came onto the scene as a young person? Well, the short answer to that question, Ed, is we've made a lot of progress in one, in some ways, and we've made startlingly little progress in other ways. But the corporate world that I faced uh, when I first entered as a trainee, to your point, in 1980, was one in which most people thought I didn't belong there. In fact, AT&T was hiring more women, less people of color, but more women because they'd had to sign a consent decree with the government. And so they were forced into it, in a sense. And that was kind of the attitude. Well, okay, we've got this woman because we got to have a woman. And so the environment was not one of uh, welcoming or uh, expectation for the potential I represented, but either neutrality or hostility. It is why my first business meeting was held in a strip club, because that's where men went to do business and they saw no reason to change their habits because of me. And yet, and yet, what I ended up learning was that people all around me were frustrated by a whole series of problems that had festered forever. And they talked about them and they bitched about them, but nobody did anything about them. And so I started working with people who were affected by those problems, who were impacted by those problems, and who therefore understood those problems. And we started trying to make them better. And what I learned is that if you can actually start making progress on a real problem that number one, you gather people to you, but number two, people pay attention. Now, fast forward. I mean, yes, I became the first woman to lead a Fortune 50 company, uh, something I'm very proud of. And yet here we are all these years later, there are more men named James or John, take your pick, who lead Fortune 500 companies than there are women who lead Fortune 500 companies. If you look in our boardrooms, we haven't made very much progress, not on people of color, not on women. The numbers have been sort of stuck for 20 years. And so um, these, this inability to truly embrace diversity as something that is necessary to encourage the highest performance possible. That's what diversity does. It creates better results. The data on that is clear as well. We got a long way to go. And it shows up in all aspects of our society. Yeah, I I would have to agree with that 100%. You know, as you were saying that, it, it, it occurred to me, uh, an anecdote that uh, I, I'm wearing this watch here 
it's a Garmin watch and it takes your heart rate. There's a green um, light underneath it. I was told actually that uh, people of color, it's not very accurate with us because basically it w we weren't in the room when they were developing the technology and that lack of diversity meant that this company, even though I'm wearing their watch, as it turns out, didn't do a great job in terms of creating a product that they could have, if they had greater diversity created. So for me, this is a perfect example of why diversity matters. I mean, how do we get that from a public policy perspective? Yeah, so first, it's such a great story. Thank you for telling it. I'll tell one of my own when I arrived at Hewlett Packard. You know, we were eighth in the PC market and server market. And, you know, I gathered this group of people and they said, well, you know, our, our core customer base are white male engineers. And so I started asking questions. Well, who's in the room? Who's on the team? And guess what? They were all white male engineers. <laughs> or if you remember Apple's first introduction of their touchscreen, it didn't work for women because our fingers aren't warm enough. And I ended up talking to Apple engineers and said, well, who's in the room? There were no women in the room. The data is crystal clear. Diverse teams are higher performing teams. It's always true. I think the way we make better progress in our companies, as well as in our public policy, is to start with a fundamental recognition that diversity and inclusion, while it may be the right thing to do, absolutely, it's a necessary thing to do if we care about performance, growth, wealth creation, all these things that matter to our companies and our nation are made better when we build diversity and equity of opportunity. All of us are gonna be better off if more people get to play. It's just true. And so I think I, I start with all that, Ed, because I think so often when corporate executives or politicians talk about diversity, they sort of think about it as this nice to do, the right thing to do, a good thing to do. What they don't recognize is it is in their own self-interest to do it. It'll make everything they care about better, but it's really hard work. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm thinking now also about the, uh, I'm thinking about your run for president in 2016. Uh, and one of the things that uh, is on my mind with regard to that is you're a businesswoman, uh, Donald Trump, he was a businessman. Uh, and one of the things that stood out is your business acumen uh, in order to be able to help run the country. Now, four years later, we know that Donald Trump is not quite as good the businessman as he was before. But when you look back, in terms of the acumen of business and what you can take into the public arena, what do you look at now versus uh, four years ago before Donald Trump got into office? Well, first let me say, Ed, that um, publicly, I have always been, um, I think the right term is dismissive of Donald Trump's business experience based on the facts you don't declare bankruptcy four times and be heralded as a great business person. 
you don't end up having to settle over and over and over again with angry and disgruntled customers and be able to claim you're a great businessman. And you certainly don't get to fail over and over. Airlines, football teams, steaks, water, vodka. What Donald Trump is, is an entertainer, not a businessman. And I said that all the way back in 2015. He is an entertainer, a quite successful entertainer, but he's not a business person. Now, what do business people bring to the table? Yes, government is different than business. Of course it is. Government is three co-equal branches. Uh, there are many things that are different about government than business, and I've been around government enough to know that. But what can business bring to the table? A focus on results, a focus on accountability, hopefully, an understanding that every dollar counts, an understanding of how vast bureaucracies actually operate and what it takes to change the direction of a bureaucracy, an understanding perhaps of how to effectively bring people together to collaborate. And so I'm not saying uh, politicians or people who have served the public all their careers cannot be successful. Clearly they can be. But I don't think Donald Trump is an example of a business person. And we should therefore conclude business people have nothing to bring to the table in politics. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good answer. And, you know, I think that let's turn that into a forward looking question about now that we are in 2021, we're going into a new administration, we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, we have uh, millions of jobs that are lost. If you look at the trajectory of, that we were on, we're actually 11.5 million jobs below that trajectory. People talk about 10 million jobs lost, but we would have gained jobs in the interim. What do we do about that? You as a businesswoman, what's your sense of what the next steps should be? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, first, let me say that I think this pandemic has illustrated, if we ever forgot, that competence and expertise matter. We need competence in government. We need expertise in government. Uh, as we think about the distribution of these vaccines, the production and distribution of these incredibly important vaccines. We need people who understand the power of the government to get that done. Uh, the government has enormous power in terms of its distribution capability. We ought to be using that power. And so competence and expertise in what government is capable of doing is critically important now. On the other hand, to your question about business, one of the things I have long said is that if you have power concentrated in very complex systems in Washington, DC, what happens is the small get crushed and they are inadequately represented. And so what we also see through this pandemic is big companies have done okay and small businesses are getting crushed. And so I do think 
that one of the things we need to bear in mind as we attempt to recover from this pandemic is much of the damage is community-based. And people sitting in Washington, D.C. can't always see all of that damage. And they don't always understand how best to repair it. Washington is great at understanding big companies and big sweeping change that's necessary, but they're not always great at understanding how to help the small community-based businesses, governments, families. I say all that to say, I have said for some time that I think more of this pandemic relief money should be uh, provided in block grants so that people closest to the problem, closest to the ground, closest to the destruction, and who therefore understand it best can put it to work wherever it will work best. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, as you say that, I, I almost had to nod in agreement. You, you go down the street in your local community and literally the only companies that are in existence are the chain stores, right? I mean, the, the diversity uh, the, of, of, uh, of what's available there, the local institutions, they've been wiped out. Yes. And, and when those small businesses get wiped out, by the way, this is what happened when the auto industry was saved. The big companies were saved. The small companies that fed those big companies got wiped out. The small jobs that they provided got wiped out. And so what happens when small business gets wiped out, first of all, the vitality and diversity in a community is damaged and destroyed. But of course, we also understand that small business is the vitality of this economy. It's the innovation of this economy. It's a huge job creation engine of this economy. So one of the things I truly worry about is that when we come out of this, the big have gotten bigger and stronger and the small have gotten weaker and crushed. And we have to have programs that lift those small businesses up again. Yeah, and you, you know, I think you're pointing out something that is very much related to uh, social media and big tech. Uh, and I think this is something that we're gonna need to talk about. But let me talk about it from a different angle because I wanna go back to your career. You started at AT&T, 1980. You know, AT&T was the subject of the next to last uh, big uh, oligopoly or monopoly That's power right. that we had in the United States. Talk to me about working within the belly of the beast, rising through that, heading up Lucent, you know, that whole turbulent period and what it tells you about what's actually happening today in terms of concentration in the technology space. So, look, what I saw at AT&T, which I think is very relevant to your question and what's happening with big tech, is preservation and resistance. So AT&T as a company was focused on the preservation of its monopoly power. Of course, they didn't call it that, but they fought competition, whether it came from MCI or someone else, they fought competition at every turn. And they were also focused on resisting regulation, government, uh, any dialogue, frankly, about how to change things. That preservation 
and that resistance ultimately led to a situation where a solution was imposed on AT&T and it was not the solution they intended, nor was it a particularly elegant or creative solution, and nor did it actually serve the American people very well, particularly in the short term, as it created massive disruption and confusion. The parallel to the technology companies, and I have said this publicly for some time, you know, you watch these CEOs go up to Capitol Hill for hearings, and what is their posture? Their posture is one of defensiveness. Hey, we got this. Stay out of your lane, politicians. We got this. We're a company. We're in charge. In other words, they are seeking to preserve and they are seeking to resist. And what's going to happen if they're not careful is a bunch of rules are going to get imposed on them because there is now bipartisan support that something has to be done. And those rules will not be the most effective because politicians don't understand these technology platforms. So what I'm calling on the technology executives to do is come together, sit down with politicians from both sides of the aisle and lay out a set of rules of the road that you're all prepared to live with, that you're all prepared to be held accountable to, that you're all prepared to be transparent about so that it can get written into regulation and legislation. It has to happen now. And now that we see the power of these platforms, I mean, yes, we can say that Jack Dorsey was right and Mark Zuckerberg was right, but my goodness, that is way too much power in the hands of a single executive. And oh, by the way, this is the public square now. These technology companies not only have amassed enormous economic power, unprecedented economic power, but they also represent the public square. And so guess what? It's bigger than them. And they're going to have to collaborate and cooperate with people who also care about the public square. You know, uh, I, the last thing that I uh, saw with regard to this was Angela Merkel from Germany basically saying, or the headline at least said, oh, hang on. Uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really excited about that whole posture. It, it it does go to the amount of power that they have, and it does go to the fact that solutions will be imposed upon them. Do you really believe that they have the wherewithal or the foresight to actually come up with uh, solutions that are self-regulating? And even if they did come up with these solutions. Does self-regulation in this case work, given what we've seen in terms of storming the Capitol and also these plans to storm the state capitals in the next uh, weekend? So first of all, let me be clear. I don't think self-regulation works. I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey did what they thought was necessary, given their <laughs> resistance uh, and preservation that's gone on for this long. Uh, but I think what is required ultimately is people who understand these platforms, that is the technology industry, and people who regulate these platforms or should regulate these platforms, that is Congress, the FCC, et cetera, need to come together to agree upon, yes, regulation, yes, legislation, that will lay out some rules of the road. 
it cannot be up to a single executive to say, whoops, I get it now, we're gonna do something. And it cannot be that we just trust these companies to do the right thing. That's not realistic, given the power they have and given the um, importance of their companies in the public square. Right. And I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, is by the way, what's happening here on Twitter uh, is the exact same thing that's happening on YouTube, which is the exact same thing that's happening on Facebook. And we've all agreed, we collectively, private industry and you uh, government, that these are the rules of the road. And there's transparency in terms of how uh, these actions, the decisions were determined. That's right. And if you think about it, that's how the communications industry, the media industry beyond these technology companies has been regulated and legislated over time. It's taken time, but that's what's been done. You know, let me just be, um, look, I know this is hard. When I was a CEO, the big subject was internet taxation. And there were a lot of technology CEOs who said, oh gosh, just don't engage with Capitol Hill. Just stay away from this because the answer is they need to leave us alone for as long as possible. And my posture was, no, I want to go talk with them about what they should be thinking about, what will work, what won't work. I know that's difficult, but it is what's required now because if it doesn't happen, the technology companies aren't going to like the answer that's imposed on them. More than that, it's not going to work terribly well because let's face it, Politicians get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, I have two thoughts on this. Okay. The first thought is Section 230. We'll we'll get to that. The second thought is AWS. Because when we talked, when when you see the public face and they're dragging people down to Capitol Hill, you think uh, Google, you think uh, of Facebook, and you think of, um, you know, uh, Twitter. But really, the truth of the matter is there are other uh, players in the space as well. And I think Microsoft is certainly one that no one talks about. But in this case, we're talking about AWS. Why? Because of Parler and the fact that Parler doesn't even exist now because they were shut down by AWS effectively. Uh, How do you deal with that aspect of regulation and the public uh, private partnership in the media business? So, you know, I said, um, Ed, several minutes ago that we have to be willing and leaders in particular have to be willing to see the truth and speak the truth and act on the truth. So let's just start with this truth. AWS, Google, Facebook, Twitter, just to name a few, have amassed more power, more wealth, more influence in the public square than any companies in our history that have been regulated. That's just a fact. They have more power and wealth and influence than the oil companies ever did, than AT&T ever did. This is massive concentration of power. And we have to acknowledge that. Therefore, because of this massive concentration of power and wealth and influence, it is completely insufficient to say, well, we just trust Bezos or Zuckerberg or Dorsey. You can't trust any individual when there is this much power concentrated. Power concentrated is power abused. It's just a fact of human history. And so now what is required is to acknowledge all that power and say, 
We have to, as a matter of policy, as a matter of regulation, as a matter of politics, we have to find a way to come up with rules of the road, regulate, legislate, and hold accountable. Uh, and if we don't, there will always be people who feel these decisions are politically motivated. There will always be people who don't trust uh, business executives with this much power to do the right thing. And there will also always be people who legitimately say, wait a second, I think there's some First Amendment issues here. If ever there was a requirement for collaborative problem solving around an issue that impacts every single one of us, it's this one. And I hope that technology executives and the Biden administration, as well as Republicans on Capitol Hill say, we got to actually start this process now. And, you know, Carly, what I what I had told you just now that uh, I almost forgot uh, as you were speaking, because I, I wanted to give you a follow on is that I wanted to talk not just about AWS, but also Section 230, which is the part of the Telecommunications Act. I believe it was in 1996 that they added, which basically gives immunity to the public facing uh, Internet uh, service providers that are, are hosting uh, content. And this is a problem uh, that people are having. One, they, they talk about First Amendment rights at the same time, but then two, there's liability uh, for suits in you know, very large platforms and how to be able to deal with that. What is a, a, a equitable solution or the beginning? What is the, the framework for thinking about the right solution to deal with Section 230? Well, so let's start by acknowledging what you just said. Section 230 was written in 1996. Times were wholly different. We did not contemplate in 1996 the way social media would erupt and evolve. Google wasn't yet a figment of the imagination of uh, two guys in a dorm room, nor was Facebook. So what people were thinking about in 1996 was what we used to call in the communications age, pipes. They were thinking about digital pipes as in the internet, and they were thinking about analog pipes as in telecommunication. Well, guess what? Social media is more than a pipe. <laughs> Social media is a platform. And so right. we have to we have to say what was written in 1996 is wholly inadequate to the reality that we find ourselves in today. The other thing, of course, we can be reminded of is we've learned over and over again in free speech cases that have made it to the Supreme Court that free speech, the First Amendment, doesn't mean you can walk into a crowded theater and yell fire. There is accountability. <laughs> for endangering people. And so, and that concept has been uh, ratified over and over again in many court cases going all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so again, I think we have to start by acknowledging that this is too complex for government to figure out all on its own, but it's also too important to let the industry figure it out all on its own. So government and industry have to come together. I think we have to acknowledge that the times have changed and we're now grappling with realities that we didn't even envision in 1996. 
And I also think we have to acknowledge and grapple with real limitations on free speech, endangering others as an example. And we have to grapple with the fact that these platforms have become the virtual public square. That's what they are. So if you think about what we consider acceptable behavior in a physical public square, maybe it helps us think about what's acceptable in a virtual public square. Yeah, that, that is interesting because I'm thinking of it in terms of utilities, public utilities, and uh, these are private uh, companies, but they're regulated uh, more heavily. Essentially, if you're the public square, uh, in some senses, that means that you need to be subject to a heavier level of regulation because you are essentially a public good on some level. Well, let's just think about a square, a public square in a community. Okay. Let's think about a public square in a community. And let's think about businesses that are around that public square and citizens who come into that public square. There's certain behavior that is not tolerated. Mm -hmm. Desecration of property isn't tolerated. Uh, lying about the quality of your product isn't tolerated. Threatening your fellow citizens isn't tolerated. In other words, while the physical, <laughs> the physical space uh, is no longer the only space we need to worry about, if we can remind ourselves of the behavior that we permit and condone and that we regulate and guard against in the physical square, I think it can help us think about what's acceptable in a virtual square. And I say that, Ed, because I think so much of this failure to act on these massive technology companies has come about because people are intimidated by technology. They think somehow the virtual world is so different. I don't understand it. Well, guess what? What's going on on these social media platforms is what's happened in public squares for generations. People talk to each other. People gossip with one another. People communicate with one another. People sell to one another. The activities that go on are not mysterious. Even if the underlying algorithms and the technology is mysterious to a lot of people. You know, the, the missing element into this conversation that we're having is the bigness factor. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about bigness uh, in general, but when I say the missing element being bigness, I'm talking about dealing with bigness from an antitrust regulatory yeah. perspective in the AT&T uh, version. I know people, you know, uh, Matt Stoller, he's someone who I know who's on, in the scene and he's talking about breaking up companies and so forth. That's his solution. Uh, a lot a lot of people are talking about that this, these days, that these companies are basically too big to exist in their current guise. Where do you fall on that? Well, that may be the case. As I say, that that flows from this notion that there is so much power and wealth and influence concentrated in a very small number of companies that you need to disperse that power and wealth. That's the breakup argument. And depending on how that argument is pursued, I think it's worth pursuing. However, the breakup argument, the concentration of power problem is different from, although related to the public square problem. Right. 
and so we have to deal with both of those things. Yes, there is too much power. And yes, these have become our public square. So how do we deal with both of those aspects? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a, a sticky wicket in that you have two different problems that you have to deal with. And, you know, we talked a lot about the public square part. Let me use an analogy to go back and talk about the bigness part. Um, AT&T, where you were working, you know, it, where I live right now, I think it was CMP Telephone when I was growing up. I yep. grew up in the D.C. area. So yep. CMP became Bell Atlantic. Uh, Bell Atlantic came together with, uh, you know, uh, 9X and then they became Verizon. I mean, essentially, you have like a proto uh, AT&T reform. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, how is it even possible? In the, in the world that we're talking about, in the regulatory structure, the antitrust structure that we have, AT&T was told to break up into the R box, and here we are. Uh, they're basically reconstituted in various forms. Yep, you're exactly right. And Ed, I must tell you, it just warms my heart that you can name all those names and you know all that history that so many people don't or don't care, but it's very illustrative history because you're exactly right full circle, we're kind of back to where we were before in terms of AT&T. However, AT&T now is diminished in many ways because it faces so much more intense competition. And I think competition is always the answer to power concentration. So, and that's why people talk about breakups because if you can, as these companies have, if you can acquire every competitor right and you can swallow up every competitor then eventually there is no constraint force and i think competition is always a constraining factor so i would always think about the breakup mentality as how do we create once again real competition in industries so that there is a check and balance on uh, growing power. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. Yeah. Very good. I mean, uh, and I almost would like to go further in this conversation, uh, but I'm going to stop because, you know, one thing that we've given short shrift to here, you have made a comment way back about, uh, you know, the strip club uh, analogy. And uh, I, I may have heard it uh, years ago, but it is, you know, incredibly, um, you know, it is incredibly disturbing. Uh, and as an anecdote, and it makes me think about the glass ceiling and women in business and comments that you might have about that. Can we talk about how is it that we make some changes in that that dynamic? The strip club is my story of people literally being either completely unaware of how um, demeaning and dismissive that situation would be, or in some cases, absolutely aware 
of how demeaning and dismissive that circumstance would be and hoping that it would scare me to death so that I wouldn't actually continue to work. That's my story. What I know is that there are so many stories like that, still so many stories like that, where women or people of color or people who are different and marginalized for a whole set of reasons are placed into a set of circumstances where they are dismissed and demeaned and perhaps shunted aside. And so they cannot bring all of their potential to the table. So I'm smart enough and wise enough to know that it's not just me that it's happened to. And I also know that it still happens, although the particulars may be different. And so I think what true diversity calls for is number one, what I mentioned before, an actual recognition that a company, for example, is hurting itself if everyone at the top looks the same. Why is it hurting itself? Because when everyone looks the same, then everyone kind of thinks the same. And when everybody kind of thinks the same, what happens over time is a loss of innovation, ingenuity, creativity, and ultimately performance. What I think is required is for people to understand that when we as an economy are wasting so much potential because we don't include it, because we don't educate these people, because we don't give them an opportunity, it is our economy that suffers. It is our wealth creation potential that suffers. The data is crystal clear. Diverse teams perform better over time. The data is crystal clear. The more people you include, the more people you include in an economy, the faster the economy grows. The data is just clear. And so we have to embrace that data and say, this isn't a nice to do. It's not just the right thing to do. We have to do it. We have to do it if we care about competing in an intensely competitive global economy. We have to care if we want our nation to continue to prosper. And all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, if we don't want to continue to see what we saw this summer with protests for racial, against racial injustice, if we don't want to see people who feel so disenfranchised because they've been lied to, then we've got to get about the business of equity, diversity, and inclusion for real. You know, uh, there was something that you said uh, in that that uh, made me think back to when you were selected to become the CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard. Uh, you, I think you were talking about everyone being the same. And so it made me think about the HP way. Um, and, you know, that was the, the way that Hewlett Packard did things. And the HP way, obviously, to a certain degree, led to a stultification and lack of innovation HP that needed to be uh, dealt with. And so what it made me think about was the early 90s in America, two CEOs in particular that I would uh, put out there. Lou Gerstner is one at IBM, you at uh, Hewlett Packard, in the sense that in order to right the ship, it required massive change, 
massive change in the sense of people actually losing jobs, lots of people losing jobs. We're at a time right now where exactly the same thing is happening. When you go back to the small business, you know, these massive companies still making it through and small businesses not making it through. We're in a, a dislocating time, uh, irrespective of what happens when we get out of the pandemic. How do you deal with that? How do, from a public policy perspective, at a minimum, because it's, it's not just one company, how do we deal with the fact that we have massive job loss in order to have a more dynamic economy going forward? Well, I do think that to your point, Ed, there certainly are times when uh, job losses are necessary to revitalize a company. So a, a company can grow fat and slow and unresponsive because there's too many layers of bureaucracy and the company therefore turns inward. And in that case, uh, there are jobs, for example, in uh, headquarters that need to be lost. I think we're talking about a different situation now, honestly, in the pandemic, because mm -hmm. um, corporate change doesn't happen just because you lay people off. In fact, some, in some cases, if you lay people off, corporations double down on their previous culture. The change process is a wholly different thing, which we can talk about if you want. But what I, the reason I think this situation is different is because now what we're facing is not strategic uh, surgical job losses in order to revitalize an economy. Now what we're talking about is millions upon millions upon millions of jobs being lost because of a sudden and dramatic and prolonged cutoff of demand. Right. So that's a very different situation. And I think it calls for very different policy responses. Well, um, let me we tell you what, what I'm thinking about, though, just uh, briefly, because I, I agree with what, where you're going with that. But I, what I think is happening, I'm thinking more about the acceleration of trends that are, are already happening. I'll give you yeah. an example. Uh, you know, Real Vision is a New York based company. Uh, I used to go, I, even though I live in, in the D.C. area, I used to go up to uh, New York and I stayed in a hotel or at friends' houses, et cetera. And the last place that I stayed in March when I was in New York, literally the last time, so that was 10 months ago, that hotel is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then when the pandemic is over, it won't exist. And people like me actually probably won't even go there. Maybe I will have conversations with you like this a year from now. Uh, so we're living in a totally different world now. And that means that uh, the jobs associated with that other world will no longer exist. That's a massive transformation uh, yeah. going forward. How do we deal with that from a public policy perspective? Yes, I, so you're absolutely right, of course. And one of the things, you know, there are many, many bad things that come from this pandemic, but there are also some good things. And one of the good things, for example, is if we can figure out how to continue to use technology effectively so that people can collaborate, it is a tool for diversity if we're smart about it. It's a tool to allow people, women in particular, for example, to be more effective at balancing work life and home life. Right now it's not playing out that way, but it could be if we're thoughtful and strategic about it. But to your public policy question, I think we have to recognize that our safety nets 
are insufficient. Mm. Mm. Uh, that you cannot have um, this kind of massive dislocation and have people literally fall through the cracks. And so I expect that there will be more bipartisan support, I hope, for um, longer standing programs around health insurance and healthcare, around unemployment insurance and retraining. Because here's the truth, and our medical experts are telling us this, this isn't the last pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't the last pandemic. And it's not going to be the last time that our economy is shocked externally by something that sets us all back on our heels and for which we need to prepare people. It's also, by the way, I hope from a public policy point of view, that we start to think about how is it that our essential workers, people who pick our food, prepare our food, distribute our food, just as an example, uh, barely are making enough money to survive. They're essential, and yet we don't pay them as essential. We need to be rethinking value of work, right. of all work, yeah. and how we compensate for it. Th th that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, um, when we talk about the value of work, uh, going back to diversity and uh, gender issues, uh, one thing I noticed is, is that when you look at the numbers from uh, the, the December job loss uh, for the numbers that just came out at the beginning of January, actually, if you just take women, all of the, the, the job losses were counted accounted for by women. So when you were saying that actually women, uh, we're not seeing it now, uh, we aren't seeing it now. You know, oh. Women are losing the most jobs right now. That's right. And in fact, what the pandemic is revealing is all the inequities that we know exist. So the pandemic hits those communities hardest that have less access to quality healthcare. Uh, the pandemic in terms of job loss is hitting women harder than men. It's hitting people of color harder than white people. I mean, these are facts. And so, yes, it, it says that now that this pandemic has illustrated that, uh, we need to work on that. I think I have heard about some companies saying things that I think are very short-sighted, mm -hmm. saying things like, if you're trying to help a child at home with their education, you can't work for us at the same time. Boy, is that short-sighted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it takes so many women out of the workforce. But also because, wow, in this fast-moving age, I think women's ability to multitask is one of the most useful skills there is. And so we ought to be figuring out how do we use technology to help people balance all these conflicting roles, not say, we don't want you anymore. Right. And, and you know, by the way, I, I should just as an aside say that literally 15 minutes ago while we were filming this, uh, my son, he came into the room and he was like, you know, he was gesturing to me about something and he was texting it to me at the same time. And so I know exactly what you're talking about yeah. because that's that's exactly how my post-pandemic world has become. So uh, Carly, uh, you know, one issue that I, uh, I wanna go full circle back to uh, as we end this 
what we talked about at the beginning in terms of politics, because there was something that I found fascinating when I was uh, listening to you talk about these issues. You talked about Enron, you talked about Ken Lay, Jeffrey Skilling, and I would say actually we even had Andrew Fasto on our platform to talk about what happened there. You didn't talk about him specifically, but he was there holding people to account. Enron was a fraud. They were held to account. Uh, now we need to hold other people to account. Talk to me about holding people to account, not just in this narrow political sense right now, which we talked about earlier, but in a, a more general sense in terms of white collar uh, criminality. Yeah. Well, you know, we celebrate in this country the rule of law, but the rule of law isn't real unless there's accountability. And if you look at the history of every corporate fraud, accountability is always a necessary step to restore people's faith in the system. And so accountability is going to be necessary in this case as well, to restore people's faith in the integrity of our political system, people have to be held to account. Whether that's censure, impeachment, I mean, we going to jail, we've talked about all those as possibilities. So accountability is a huge piece of rebuilding a system and restoring faith in the integrity of that system, whether it's a company or it's our republic. The second important part of that, however, is that we, you know, we have to acknowledge that silence contributes always. So if you go back to Enron, here's the truth. And I was around, you know, I was an executive in various companies when Enron was going on. At the beginning, people would say things, you know, wow, is this really true? And they would get shut down. And then, you know, in the Enron boardroom, they were asked to waive their code of ethics. And somebody said, well, do we really want to do that? And then they got shot down. And in the bowels of that company, people would try and raise objections and they would get shot down and were told, no, 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 we got to pop the stock. We got to pop the stock. In other words, if you go back to any of these stories, including the one that happened on Capitol Hill last Wednesday. In addition to lack of accountability, there is a unwillingness to speak up and speak out. Why? Because people wanna go along to get along. Why? Because people think there's some short-term gain. The stock price, another election, political power. People always have to speak up. And when they don't, eventually, bad things are going to happen. Carly Fiorina, well said. Uh, I, I think we'll have to leave it there with that uh, great quote. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, I hope that you come back to Real Vision again. It's been really such a pleasure to, to uh, make your acquaintance and to have this conversation. Well, thank you, Ed. I've really enjoyed it. It's an important conversation. And I'll look forward to the next time. Thank you so much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.